Thanks so much, Cindy, for sharing that story with us and for that powerful reminder and illustration of what Jesus has done for us. What Jesus has done for us. I want you to hold on to that thought because, as I say, we are going to take a look at the book of Job and we're going to take a look at some, some teaching that's given there and, and we're also going to see some errors in some of the teaching that's given. But let's not lose sight of this fact that Jesus did this for us. I want to take this opportunity right now to let the kids know what the assignment is for this week for the pastor's club. Each week I'm asking the kids to draw pictures and I was going to do it later on in the sermon and then I realized, no, I probably should do it at the beginning of the sermon because I've actually been getting pictures texted to me before, like, before the sermon's even done there's already pictures on my phone. Now, I don't know that till after the service, okay? It's not like I got my phone sitting up here and I'm watching for, for texts and stuff. But as soon as service is done, there's already texts there. Um, by the way, I have a new phone number. I now officially live in Estevan. So parents, if you were texting me your, your things up till now, they won't go through. You'll have to contact the church office to get my new number. But uh, do get those pictures to me. Here's what I want a picture drawn of. Draw a picture of something that you need help doing. Something that you need help doing. See, we're going to talk about the reality that we can't do all things this morning. We do need help in many different ways. As I mentioned already, we're going through the book of Job, and it'll take us a few weeks to get through it. And this morning, we are taking a look at chapters 3, 4, and 5. Now, because we're covering such large sections of Scripture in each Sunday morning, we will not be taking time to read through, those, through the, the entire text. So I'd encourage you during the week to, to read through in advance. As I mentioned, we're going to be going through kind of sections based on Job speaks and then a friend replies. Next week, Job speaks, a friend replies. And so you'll always be able to look ahead and get a good idea of where we're going to be looking at. This morning is chapter 3, 4, and 5. And I want to just point out, Graham has read Psalm 23 for us. One of the most familiar passages of Scripture anywhere in the world. You can go to all different places and even public venture venues and if a scripture is going to be read, often it will be Psalm 23. And one of the neat things about Psalm 23 is it gives beautiful description of truths about God. It gives a beautiful description of blessings from God. But it also acknowledges the reality of hardship. As it talks about the valley of the shadow of death and the presence of enemies. And I asked Graham to read this, this passage this morning because... The themes and the flavor of Psalm 23 are very similar to what we are going to look at in these three chapters. Just a brief overview of the three chapters. Chapter, chapter 3 is the first bit of conversation we have since Job's friends have shown up. At the end of chapter 2, we, we've already heard about all the loss that Job has had. Just to review, in case you're brand new to the story, Job is a guy who, it, on one day, his... Children died, all of his livestock was killed or stolen, and all of his servants were killed. He lost absolutely everything. And then on a later day, he lost his health as well. He ended up with sores that covered his whole body. He lost absolutely everything. Even his relationship with his wife became strained 
as she encouraged him, why are you continuing to live in integrity? Just curse God and have it over with. Be done with it. But in all that, Job did not sin in his response is the way it's described for us both in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so we've got this fellow who has lost so much. And he's got, we've got three friends who show up to comfort him. And the first thing they do is they sit with him for seven days and don't say a word. I would say it's probably the most caring thing they could have done. They just sat with him in his time of grief and loss. And Job is the one who breaks the silence. And in chapter 3, Job begins the conversation this way. Verse 3 of chapter 3. May the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. And he continues. He, he sets the tone for his whole talk that he's going to give. Really what he's doing is he is expressing to his friends the deep grief and sorrow that he's experiencing. And he starts in the first 12 verses by basically saying, I wish I had never been born. This hurts so much, I wish I wasn't even around. And then he goes on to take it a step further and point out, you know, I think it would be better if I was dead. At least if I was dead, I'd be resting with the kings and the princes who had amassed wealth when they lived here on earth. I wish I'd never been born. I wish I were dead now. This would be easier to deal with and it would be better for me. And then he poses a question. A question that many of us grapple with. A question that we talked about a few weeks ago in the sermon. He poses the question in verses 20 to 23. Why do I have to suffer? Why do people have to suffer, period? Why does this even have to happen? God, why do I have to go through this? Why did I have to lose my children, all my livestock, all my servants, my health? Why do I have to go through this, God? And he ends his first statement of conversation by summarizing his feelings in verse 24 to 26. For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, only turmoil. That's how the conversation starts between Job and his friends. Now, we don't know what happened next. I'm kind of curious to know, how did they decide who's going to respond to this? I don't know about you, but if I was sitting down with somebody and they have just been expressing such deep sorrow and deep pain, I'd, I'd find myself at a loss for words. Like, like, how do you respond to that? Now, may, perhaps the three friends kind of turned their, their backs to Job and quickly went rock, paper, scissors. Best out of three. No, 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 no. You're going, you're going. Come on, Eliphaz, it's your turn. Maybe Eliphaz was already ready. Maybe he came knowing what he wanted to say to Job. We don't really know, but we, we, we know that Eliphaz is the first to speak. Eliphaz, 
speaks in chapter 4 and 5 and responds to this expression of grief that Job has had. And he starts out on a pretty good note, actually. He affirms Job. And he speaks to the reality. Let me just read it for you. Uh, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? I'm at verse 3 of chapter 4. Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who have stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. He starts out by pointing to Job. You've walked with a lot of people through suffering. You've encouraged others. But then he makes a statement, which almost sounds like he's switching from comforting him to almost rebuking him. But now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. Have you noticed that in conversation, a lot of good conversation is visual? I mean, you can hear the words that have been said, but if you don't see the the expressions, it's hard to know what's really being being said. It's like there's some conversations that just should not happen over text because all you get is the words, and you don't get the emotion behind it, and you're really not sure. Have you ever received a text from somebody? You thought, oh, man, this person's really mad at me. Then you find out they weren't mad at all. They were just making a statement. It's because you can't, you don't get the context. You don't get to see their reaction. You don't get to experience what's going on. And we don't know because in this conversation, all we have is the words recorded. But when I look at the rest of the response that Eliphaz gives, it seems to me like his attitude is almost one of smarten up, Job. You've helped a lot of other people when they were suffering, and now it's your turn to suffer, and you get discouraged? Come on, you know that everybody goes through tough times. Smarten up here. It's just time to deal with it. He then goes on and makes a statement. Verse 6, Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? We're going to come back to this verse in just a few moments, but let me just continue walking through the speech that he gives. Because really, he has a thesis that he's presenting. And as he goes through his speech, he's laying the foundation for that. He starts by making a spirit, uh, an earthly observation, verses 7 to 11. Basically, he's saying, you know, I've been around the block enough times to know that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Let me just read verse 8. He kind of summarizes it with this verse. I have observed those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. It's an earthly observation that he's making. He then goes on to make a spiritual observation. Verse 12 to 16, he describes a vision that he's had. We don't know exactly what this vision was. He does describe it as being something that came at night, the time when people sleep. Was it actually a dream that he had? Was it a time when he was awake and his brain was going and he received a, a vision while he was awake? Was it just the way that he described the thoughts that God put into his mind? We don't really know, but we do know it's something that God had revealed to him him. And what he reveals to him is basically, God is God, I am not. Sound familiar? 
If, if, you've been, if you've been attending our live stream services for the last few weeks, you've heard me say that statement a lot. I actually did not realize how often that truth comes out in the book of Job when I first started preaching through it. But it comes up over and over and over again. And so here we have Eliphaz who makes this statement. And if we look at verse 17, he, he puts it this way. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? So the earthly observation, good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. The spiritual observation, God is God. You are not. And then he goes on to describe the power and sovereignty of God. Just how big God is in the work that he's doing. And in verse 11 to 15, he starts to allude to God's justice. Now remember I said there's parallels between Psalm 23 and these, these chapters? These are all truths that are being declared. The description of God is bang on. The promises of blessing which he describes in verse 18 to 26 is also bang on. He's declaring a lot of truths. He is affirming Job for the fact that he has comforted others. But there's a flaw in his logic. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. Because you see, he's laying this foundation by saying, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. God is God, you are not, you can't be as holy as he is. God is sovereign, God also practices justice. And there are blessings that you can receive. We see that in verse 18 to 26. But verse 17 is the hinge point. Can a mortal, sorry, of chapter 5. I was back in chapter 4. We're now in chapter 5, verse 17. Blessed is the one whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Uh, let me just... Uh, read to you the very last thing that he says. This is where we get a glimpse into what really the attitude is here. This is not just a, a you know, casual conversation of maybe some things to think about. Here, here's how he ends it, verse 27. We have examined this, and it is true, so hear it and apply it to yourself. We have examined this. In chapter 2, we know that the friends met beforehand, prearranged to meet together. And when they met together, then they came to Job. We're going to see this recurring theme coming up with all of the friends speaking. Over and over, we're going to see that there is a specific truth that they think Job needs to hear. And so Eliphaz is just the first one to present it. And he puts the ball back in Job's court and says, now you apply it to yourself. So what is the thesis that they're presenting? Well, in this case, we see that Eliphaz is putting the emphasis on Job and what he does and saying, this is what's going to fix it. This is what's going to fix this situation. It's what you do. Let's go back to chapter 4, verse 6, because this is where we see this the most. Uh, Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope. Basically, he's telling Job, what you do is what's going to determine whether you have hope or not. What you do is going to determine whether this situation works out well or not. Now, as I looked at this verse, I found myself questioning, what does the word piety mean? 
It's not a word that I regularly use in conversation. I know what pie is. I like pie, but I don't know what piety is. And I looked it up and I found the most incredibly helpful definition. I hope you hear the sarcasm dripping off of that. This is the definition I found. <clears throat> piety. To be pious. Well, thank you very much. Now i got to find out what does it mean to be pious. Well, fortunately, the definition did go on. It, it's a person of faith. Someone who has piety is religious or devoted to something. They have reverence for God. You may be reading in a different version than I am. I, I use the New International Version. That's the, the version that I choose to use for most of my studies and preaching. But in the King James, that word piety is actually defined as the fear of God. And so it's this idea of reverence. It also is defined as devout fulfillment of religious obligations. Now those sound like great Great definitions to have, you know, and it sounds like a great way to be described. Wouldn't you like someone to describe you as being a devout follower of God, someone who's faithful to God, someone who's pious? But here's the problem. What does Eliphaz say? Should not your piety, your faithfulness to God, your commitment to God, the devotion to religious um, obligations... Should not all of that be your confidence and your blameless ways, your hope? You see, what Eliphaz is doing is he's saying, look, Job, this is up to you. We know you're a good guy. In fact, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, God himself describes Job as being blameless. Doesn't mean he's perfect and without sin, but it means that he is... in." living in a relationship with God that is such that he is keeping short account for his wrongdoings. We're told that he offered sacrifices for his kids in case they cursed God without even knowing it. He made sure that he was always offering the sacrifices that he needed and experiencing the, the purification uh, that was, was available at that time. This was important to him. These were things that he did. But Eliphaz is saying, you keep doing that because that's what's going to give you hope. That's what's going to give you confidence is the things that you do. And he goes on, and the whole foundation that he's laying is you've obviously done something wrong, Job, so you need to experience judgment. And if you go through God's judgment, if you pay the price for whatever it is that you've done wrong, then you'll experience all the blessings. And that's the whole thing that he's presenting in this speech. That's why he starts out by saying, I've noticed that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Earthly observation. I know that God is God and you are not, and I know that God is God of judgment and that he will carry out judgment and that if we are willing to pay the price for whatever we've done, then we experience his blessings, which are described at the end of chapter 5. Let's just consider for a moment the story of Mrs. Chalky once again. Let's go back to that story. It's an illustration of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Each week I stand in front of this particular cross. It's a representation, a reminder of what Jesus did for us. Not that long ago we celebrated Easter. And we remember 
the story and the fact that Jesus died on the cross paying the price for our sins. That he made it possible for us to enter into a relationship with him. Now I want us to consider for a moment, what do I do in order to earn my salvation? Hmm. Have you ever talked to somebody who felt that as long as I am doing good things, as long as I live a life that is doing the right things, then I'm earning my favor with God? Perhaps you think that sometimes as well. You know, in fact, this is something that sets Christianity apart from every other religious belief system that's around. The focus is always on it's what I do that earns the merit. And so people live in this this state of uncertainty and perhaps almost fear at times because if I do good things, oh, well, then I'm earning favor with God. But if I do bad things, oh, no, the scales tip the other way. i got to do more good things to get the scale back. And living in this perpetual time of, of uncertainty and not knowing where I'm at and standing with God, And you know, this is not a new idea. In fact, it was around at the time when the scriptures were written. It's why we have verses like Titus chapter 3, verse 5, which says, Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to God's mercy he saved us. It's why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tell us that it's by grace we've been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You know, the reality is I can do nothing to earn my salvation. I can do nothing. You might say it's mission impossible. And yet, what was Eliphaz saying? Job, it's what you do. You do things that are right. You make sure you're blameless. You make sure that you're fulfilling your religious obligations. You make sure that you're paying the price. Whatever it is God says the price is, you make sure you are doing it and you'll be restored favor in God's eyes. You see, Eliphaz allowed his teaching to fall into a ditch. A ditch that is that of complete reliance on ourselves. But you know, the interesting thing is that when you drive down a road, there's usually two ditches. At least in the prairies, that's the case. There may be some places where you've got a straight cliff on this side and there's no ditch kind of thing. But, but you know, you drive down the road and there's two ditches. My father-in-law used to always say, every time we'd get in the car to make the long trip from B.C. to Saskatchewan, if he was ever there when I was leaving, I remember he'd say to me, keep her between the ditches. Okay, I'll keep her between the ditches. I'd like to keep it between the yellow lines, actually. That'd be a bit more specific, but okay, ditches is good. Good bit of advice. You know, I can do nothing to earn my salvation. And yet it's natural to focus on what I do. That's one ditch. But you know, there's another ditch on the other side of the road. And that's the ditch of saying, I can do absolutely nothing So therefore, God does everything, so I don't have to do anything. I've had conversations with people that are going through physical or financial challenges. And they have incredible faith in God. They trust him completely, that he is going to provide for their financial needs. And yet when I start talking to them about, well, what steps have you taken? What what are you doing in order to work at this situation? They say, oh, I'm not doing anything. 
God's the one who's going to provide. I'm just waiting for him to provide. I'm like, no, but you're not doing anything? No, God's going to provide. I know of individuals who have gone through physical challenges. And when you'd ask them about treatments and that type of thing, oh, no, I'm not going through that. God's the healer. God's going to do it. If I were to go to the doctor, that would show a lack of faith on my part. I'm totally trusting God. Huh. Perhaps that's the other ditch. Of so completely trusting in God that we lose sight of the fact that even though I can do nothing, God does everything The reality is he wants us to live in the tension in between. He wants us to keep it between the ditches. Because, well, let's just think of the story of salvation. The story that was illustrated through Mrs. Chalky. What does the verse say that I just read? The one that I used to point out that I can do nothing? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Absolutely, it's God who brings about our salvation. It's the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross that saves our sins. There's nothing I can do, but what does it say? It is by grace you are saved through faith. Whose faith? It's not the faith of your parents. It's not the faith of your family members. It's not the faith of your church family. It's not the faith of your pastor. It's not the faith of anybody else. It's your own faith. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 tells us, If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Who does the confessing? I do. You do. Who does the believing? I do. You do. The reality is that God has called us to do things, to be a part of the work that he's doing, But we need to be careful not to drop into either one of the ditches. Because the moment we focus on, I do it, if we lose sight of the fact that it's God who's doing it through us, we fall into this ditch over here that Eliphaz did in saying, it's all about what I do. It's all about what you do. And if we choose not to do anything, we fall into the other ditch and say it's completely God. The reality is, It is completely God, but he chooses to use us in the work that he's doing. He chooses for us to be a part of it. Even in receiving salvation, we are the ones who choose to receive it. We are the ones who must confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts. We are the ones who receive the gift. That doesn't mean that we earn our salvation. No, the salvation is received because of the work that only God can do. We are a part of it as we receive it. And he does that saving work through us. And you know, it's the same for everything we do in life. I'm preaching right now. I could focus on the task and say, it's because I preached a good sermon that this happened or because I preached a bad sermon that this happened. You know, I've heard stories of pastors who, who found it very challenging when they'd finish their sermon because they'd always be going through self-critiquing and they'd go home and just be miserable because it's like, oh man, that was a horrible sermon. Oh man, that's, that's just, it didn't work out and the illustration didn't fly and you know, I don't think I was clear enough on the second point. I, I've had sermons like that. 
I've had sermons, and honestly, I could critique every sermon and probably find something where it's like, you know, I probably could have done that better. Oh, I could have done that differently. But you know the interesting thing? Oftentimes, when I preach a sermon that I, that I walk away from thinking, oh, man, that just bombed. That'll be the week that somebody calls me up and says, thank you for your sermon. Here's how God spoke through it. Yes, I put the work into preparing the sermon. Yes, I put the work into getting ready. Yes, I'm the one who's presenting it. But ultimately, it is God who speaks through it. But it's not just things that happen in church. Many, many are called to serve in different workplaces. What we do is the action that we take. But we can focus on God working through us even in our workplace. Even as we interact with our families, even as we interact with our neighbors, it is God who desires to work through us. But Eliphaz lost sight of this. He focused on Job. It's what you do that's going to make the difference. The reality is, what I do is mission impossible. But when God works through it, Mission Impossible becomes possible. I want you to consider for a moment. Have you allowed yourself to fall into either one of those ditches in any way? Is there something that you are focusing so much on, this is what I do and I'm going to fix this and I'm going to take care of this and this is the task that I need to do and it's because of this task that there's going to be an outcome? And by the way, just a little aside, there are consequences to our actions, absolutely. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I'm not saying that if we work hard, things will happen. You know, and, and Absolutely, there are earthly consequences and there are earthly outcomes to what we do. But if we allow ourselves to fall into the ditch where our total focus is on this is what I do, and we lose sight of the reality that God desires to work through us, we've fallen into the one ditch. Or maybe there's an area of life where you are saying, this is just totally in God. I'm not doing anything about it. And yet God is saying, I want you to take a step in that area. I want you to do something. I appreciate the kind of faith that people have when they can so totally rely on God that they say it's completely Him, even in difficult circumstances. That is awesome. We need to have faith like that. But let's not lose sight of the fact that God wants us to be a part of the work that he's doing. Let's keep it between the ditches. The place where we should be living is in that tension between the, the two. Interesting thing about false teaching, often at the root of false teaching, there actually is a truth. I can do nothing on my own. God is the one who does everything. But the reality is, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It is God who desires to work through us. What's the challenge you're facing this week? Are you listening for God's direction as to what steps he wants you to take and then relying on him that he's going to be the one that's going to work as you take those steps? One of the neat things about tough times is that it's when we go through tough times, we have an incredible opportunity to grow as a person, 
to grow in our relationship with God and to see God working in ways that we never imagined possible. I want to provide opportunity for us to reflect this morning on what we've heard. Kind of an almost an abstract message in a way, but it does have a very practical application. Have you allowed yourself to fall into either one of those ditches? Rick and his family are going to sing a song for us that talks about the scars that we experience in tough times and how we can be thankful for them because it's through those times that we learn. Is there something God's wanting to teach you this morning? Is he wanting to bring you back to that place where you're in between the ditches? Use this song as an opportunity to talk to God about that. Perhaps this message is more of an encouragement for you as you're able to see ways that God has been working through you and to continue with that. Then use this song as a time of celebration. And after they've finished singing the song, it's entitled Scars, they're going to lead us in an opportunity to express worship once again through music as we declare a song that brings us back to that truth that it's the work that God has done that's the most important and that he is the one who's in control and we give it to him. And so let's spend this time reflecting and worshiping together as Rick and his family lead us in song.